swing through verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. My daughter is uh, just a little bit past one year old. She's just barely there. And she hasn't started talking yet, at least not in any way that we can really discern what she's saying. She does some mamas, some dadas, some ggs, some highs thrown in there, but nothing that we can actually understand what she's saying. And we're really looking forward to that day, whenever it finally comes, when she's going to start saying words that we know, where she's going to start trying to communicate in sentences so that we can try to understand and know exactly what she's saying. There's one phase, though, within her learning how to talk that I personally am not looking forward to. Uh, That's the why phase. Every kid goes through it. They get to a certain age, and they are trying to put everything together in their minds. They're trying to understand cause and effect. So every time you tell them something, their their answer is actually a question, which is, why? Why do I have to do that? Why is that what you said? Why is that how the world works? Mommy, why is the sky blue? Because uh, it is. But why? Why is it blue? Well, because the blue is actually the easiest color for us to see. And light, whenever it gets scattered, looks like it's blue to us. Why? Uh, because it's on that end of the, the spectrum of things that we can see rather than the other end, which is red. It, it could be red if it were the hardest one to see, but it's so easy to see, so it becomes blue. But why? God made it that way. It just is. Take some goldfish, go. Get out of here. Why? They ask that question over and over, and there could be no end to that question. You could always ask why to whatever someone asked or answered right before you. Throughout the last few weeks of Mark, in Mark 11 and 12 specifically, it's kind of felt that same way. That there's been no end to the questions that Jesus has been asked. He's been peppered with questions over and over throughout the end of Mark 11 and into Mark 12. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders asked him, where does your authority come from? The Pharisees and the Herodians asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees asked him about the resurrection. And Jesus answered all of them, showing his authority and knowledge, refuting them, rebuking them for his hypocrisy and their wrong mindsets. But after today's question and today's answer, the questions stop. It's the end of their questions. No one dares to ask him anything else. And I think the reason that we arrive at the end of the questions today in this text is because these answers to these questions are the answers to our most ultimate questions. He ultimately tells us why we're here, why we exist. 
He shows us what should be our ultimate priority. He gives us four answers to our ultimate questions in our text today. The first answer to our ultimate questions that Christ gives us is to know God. When we're asking an ultimate question, his answer is know God. We get a question today from a single scribe. He's heard all of these other interactions. He's seen what Jesus has done, how he's answered the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. And whenever he sees that he answers their questions well, even the hard questions, even when he's been backed into a corner and doesn't seem to have any way out. Every time he gave them a good answer, every time he answered them well. So the scribe says, "Okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. This guy is going to be able to answer my question." So he asked him a question that the scribes debated all the time. What is the greatest commandment? When it comes down to it, what's the one thing that has to drive everything else that we're doing? What's the one thing I have to do in order to find the first and utmost priority in my life? What is that thing that I have to keep as primary? He says, what's the the driving force, Jesus? What has to be the foundation that builds on everything else? And if we're being honest, I think we're all in some ways asking similar questions. If you've thought about your life at all, you've thought, what's most important to me? What's the one thing I have to keep the main thing? What's the one thing that has to be the central focus and the driving direction of everything that I do? The scribe's trying to figure out what is his point of reference, the direction he has to head and pursue with a singular focus, trusting that as he pursues that, everything else is going to come into focus around him. It's a good question. And the scribe asks it honestly. All the other questions were meant to confront Jesus, meant to trap him, trying to make him look silly in his answer. The scribe actually says, no, you know what you're talking about. Please tell me the answer to this question. It's a good question because it's asked honestly in the pursuit of helping the scribe live a righteous life before God. Jesus answers the question. He doesn't duck it. He doesn't answer it with another question. He doesn't make the scribe look or feel foolish. He says simply and clearly, okay, this is the greatest commandment. This is what you must do. And that commandment that he gives, the first of which can be summed up as to know God. His answer that he gives in verse 29 is a reference back to the Shema. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That commandment, hear, O Israel, that's a reference back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6. It was a prayer that the Jews prayed twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The first focus in that prayer, when you hear it, is listen. Hear. Listen, Israel. That's what Shema is in Hebrew. That's why they named it that. It's the listen prayer. So this greatest commandment doesn't begin with you doing something. It begins with you receiving something. Hear. Listen. Pay attention. Imbibe what is being revealed to you. You cannot know God apart from him revealing himself to you. You can know some things about God. You can know his existence and his divine attributes. Those have been clearly perceived by all men, Romans 1. But you can't know him in his fullness. You can't know him to the fullest extent that a finite human is capable without hearing his revelation, without knowing how he has revealed himself to be. And you can't know that apart from the Bible. So anyone who says that they're spiritual but they're not religious, 
They're not into Christianity, but they like Jesus. They believe in God. Ultimately, what they're revealing is that they're wrong. They're not understanding. They're not hearing the revelation of God through his scriptures. They've got some other idea of who God is in their mind. They haven't started with what they've received. They've started with what they think. They don't know him because they haven't sought out his revelation. And that revelation, who he is, when he reveals himself, that's found and contained in your Bible. These words, this book, your intake of God's revelation of his nature, that's the first step toward you obeying what Jesus is calling here the greatest commandment. Your Bible matters so much. Let this be one of the many, many, many times that I plead with you to read it. Please, take it in. Study it. Get to know it. Learn to love it. See its beauty. See its form. Shame on us when we say that we love God, but we don't love his word. Shame on us for claiming to know him without knowing who he has revealed himself to be in his word. For you to know God, that has to start with you listening to who he is. Hear the revelation. Hear, O Israel. And hear, not just so you can hear and stop, but hear that you might know who he is and what he's like. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This great commandment begins with you listening to theology, with you listening to doctrine, with you listening to God's revelation of who he is as who he actually is. It's content-based. Before you get to the point where you're able to love God, you have to know who it is that you're loving. If you are a Christian, you cannot not be a theologian. You are a theologian. You are someone who has beliefs about God. You are someone who knows some things about God. And you are called to know and believe more and more and more. You cannot rightly love, serve, or follow a God that you do not know. If you don't understand who he is, then you haven't actually heard. You haven't actually listened to the revelation of who he is. My wife loves ice cream. It is far and away her favorite dessert. Nothing else really even comes close. It's not a debate. If I ask, do you want dessert? The answer is yes. And the answer is ice cream every time. But she's actually really particular when it comes to ice cream. She does like ice cream in general, but she likes some ice cream specifically. Most often, she's going to say, Bluebell is the best ice cream. That is the best brand. They don't make a bad ice cream that is Bluebell ice cream. But what she particularly likes about Bluebell is that they're the only ones that make chocolate chip cookie dough that she likes. Anybody else makes it? Terrible. Bluebell, good stuff. She likes Bluebell. But sometimes, every once in a while, she gets in a mood where, for whatever reason, she wants, like, the cheapest Neapolitan ice cream you could possibly get. Like, the biggest jug of that gross ice cream that no one else on the planet ever likes or eats. She likes Neapolitan ice cream. Whenever we are out, if we're on a date, if we're on a trip, and we go and find a fancy ice cream place, and we do every time, what she is going to get every time Is whatever coffee flavor they have. Cappuccino, salted caramel mocha, anything. Doesn't matter. If it's a coffee flavor of ice cream, that's what she's going for. Every time. I know 
my wife's ice cream preferences like the back of my hand because I have heard when she has revealed to me who she is and what she likes. Those are the things that she likes. She is an ice cream person. We are an ice cream family. And I know that because when she revealed who she is, I heard it. I listened to it. I was able to start with hearing the words, and I took them internal, and now I know them. So through those words, I know her. That's who she is. I heard the revelation, and now I know the person. And that enables me to love her. That's the second answer that Jesus gives to our ultimate questions. He says, first of all, know God. Second, love God. One of the best acts of love that I can give to my wife is the gift of well-timed ice cream. When is well-timed ice cream? Anytime. Every time. There is not a bad time for ice cream in her eyes. But I love her by giving that to her which she desires. I'm able to love her because I know what she desires. I know how she's revealed herself to be, what she's like, who she is. And that's the same way that this progresses in this text. Verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You know God, which enables you to love God and to love him specifically in this way, in these ways. Love him with all of your heart. I think that this command is telling you to love him with all of your affections, all of your feelings and desires. You should desire him as your greatest desire. You should hold him first in your soul, first in your mind, first in your strength. That's where love begins, right? In the affections. Love doesn't begin out of anything else. It begins out of a desire, an affection for the person. What love could there be without affection? So for God who is to be your first and greatest love, you should have your first and greatest affection. You see, so many of us have this idea in our head that it's actually only really loving God when it's hard. You actually only love God when it's hard to love God. It's only loving him when you do it out of duty, when we do it even though we don't feel like doing it. i got to be honest, what kind of love is that? If there's only duty behind the love... And no affection behind the love. That doesn't sound like love to me. It sounds just like duty. But your duty within love is to delight in the love that you have. Have an affection for the thing that you claim to love. What does it say about our God when we try to love him without liking him? I don't think that glorifies him at all. I don't think that shows him to be great at all. And he is great. Jonathan Edwards, when he was talking about the same idea, said this. He said, God is not only glorified by his glory being seen, but by being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. He's trying to help us see that delighting in God, enjoying God, Loving him with our affection, that's even more glorifying to God than merely loving him out of duty. Merely loving him because we think we're supposed to. Merely loving him only whenever we don't feel like it. He would prefer that we feel like it. That we love him and delight in him. We believe that so much here at Pleasant Grove 
that it's part of our purpose statement. We took that from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's where all of our love, all of our actions should begin. That yes, we glorify God, but part of how we glorify God is by enjoying him both now and forever. We have to love him with all of our hearts, and that means loving him with all of our affection. But we continue loving him even with all our soul. Again, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And I think this one's the hardest of these four to understand. Because I, I think what this is saying, in love the Lord your God with all your soul, is to love him with the deepest core of who you are. Love him way down deep. That when you drill into you as far as you can get, when you reach the jelly-filled center of who you are, What you find in that place is a love for God. That it should be thorough from top to bottom, without any mixture of anything else. We love him simply and truly in every part of who we are. And that includes loving him with all of our mind. We have to love him with our intellect. That brings me back to the point I made earlier. You are a theologian. Theology matters. Who God is and what he's like isn't something that you can farm out to someone else. You can say, they have to know it, I'll just show up. I'll just sing the songs, I'll just listen to the sermon, and I'll go home. No, you have to know that. You have to believe that. It matters for you. So many of us make conscious efforts to feel like we love God, to feel like we're worshiping him. We want a a worship experience. We want to feel as if we love him. But we don't actually put forth the effort to think about him, to understand who he is. To think like we're worshiping. What the Bible says about God is absolutely true from top to bottom. It can stand up to all of your deepest questioning from now until the end of your life. It has stood up for the past 6,000 years plus. Who it reveals is infinite. You will never get bored studying God. We have to love him with all of our minds. It's simply not an option for us. If you thought it was, hear this verse. Psalm 111, verse 2, says this, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. If you claim to love God, if you claim to delight in him, studying his works is what you do. Studying who he is is what you do. You have to love him with your mind. Study him. Read his book. Read other books that will help you understand his book. It is hard for me in my mind to imagine a Christian who is growing in their faith, who's looking more like Jesus, not only becoming a disciple, but bringing others with them, making disciples, discipling others. Someone who's doing those things, but yet isn't reading, isn't studying, isn't taking in scripture for themselves. One of my favorite blessings that God has given this church since we've been here in just this short year that has been, is people who want to read. People who want to study. We have a church Bible reading plan. I know there's a lot of people who started it and probably fallen off, but I know there are some people who are still right there every day reading the exact same things together as a church. I've had several groups of people, several different groups of men come up and say, you know what, we want to read this book together. Do you want to do it with us? Will you go through this book with me? 
I, I want to know more. I want to understand more. I want to be discipled. Will you read this book with me? Our deacons, me and your deacons, have been going through books within our meetings. We're on our second one. It's been less than a year. I think that God is blessing us by implanting within us a desire to know him better through reading. First of all, his word, but continuing in our study through reading whatever we can get our hands on, whatever we can get that might slake our thirst. God is going to bless a culture of reading in this church by enabling us to love him with all of our minds, everything we've got in our heads. And that love for him culminates and continues through loving him with all of our strength. The end of 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I think this is talking about veracity. It's talking about intensity. We're supposed to love him with everything we've got. With the full force and weight of our effort. The full focus and attention of our will. We must persevere in loving him regardless of the costs, regardless of the obstacles, regardless of the reasons we might be given not to love him throughout our lives. With all the strength he's given us, what we do with that is we pour it into our love for him. And in so doing, we can fulfill the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. So we not only know him, but we love him. That brings us to the third example in our text, the third answer that Christ gives us. When we love God truly in this way, we can't help but love our neighbor as well. Verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Loving God inevitably overflows into loving people, into loving others. You cannot do one without the other. Alan, you can just turn it off. Twenty and twenty-one says this: If anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You claim to love God. You claim to be someone who loves the God of the universe. You don't even see him. And yet you claim to love him? I will know whether you claim to love the God of the universe and whether that's true, not by your claim to loving the one that you cannot see, but by your actual love right now for the one that you can see, for your neighbor, for your brother, the one who's right in front of you. John is saying, if you can't love the one that's right there with that easiest and most obvious opportunity, I don't think you actually love the God that you can't see. That's hard. It's ethereal when we love him sometimes. People who love God also love their neighbor. They also love their brother. There's a similar exchange in Luke 10 to the one we get between Jesus and the scribe in this morning's text. And in Luke 10, how that ends, how that culminates, is the scribe says, okay, so who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who is that? And Jesus' answer is the story of the Good Samaritan. That your neighbor, who you are to love, is whoever you come across. Whoever's in front of you. Whoever needs you to love them. That's who your neighbor is. That's how we love them. 
You are to love whoever is around you. And when you love them, you love them as you love yourself. The same care and affection that you have for yourself, the same focus and love, that's the same focus and love you are to have for your neighbor, for whoever's in need, for whoever's around you. When you love your neighbor, you love them as your own self. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Ephesians 5.29 So when we wonder how to love our neighbor as ourselves, we should instinctively know what to do. We should instinctively understand how that works. We love ourselves, so we love them the same way that we love ourselves. We do meet their basic needs. We ensure survival. We give them hope and help toward a better quality of life. We do those things. But even more foundational than meeting those physical needs, even more eternal than meeting those physical needs, we love our neighbors by giving them the gospel that we have received. We love our neighbors by giving them the God who is the gospel. We introduce them to the God of the universe who loved them and died for them. That's how we love them. Fill their bellies, yes. Help pay their rent, sure. But hear me say, with the best intention that I have, that a man whose rent is paid and who gets to eat one more meal but dies and spends an eternity in hell hasn't really been that helped. Now, we don't ultimately control that final end. So, yes, we do the other things in between. But our focus, our aim, has got to be in gospel work. It has to be in evangelistic work. When we approach our church budget, when we approach our personal budgets, when we approach our volunteer time, any new initiatives that we have as an individual or as a church, we have to ask the question, how do we impact our community? How do we love our neighbor here in Conway, these people? And I think as we answer that question, we have to keep the fact in mind that our focus has to be gospel work, evangelistic work. We have to prioritize that. We have to prioritize church plants over ministries. Those ministries may be good and helpful, but if they're primarily serving physical needs without much of a gospel focus, other people can do that. We've got to be gospel people, church people, evangelism people. Because no one else is going to be those people. No one else is going to do those things. We love our neighbors as ourselves because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus says that there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. He's making the point there that these are inextricably connected. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. So these two commandments make up the greatest commandment. Love God and love people. You'll hear people sometimes say, I'm not usually one for Instagram mottos, slogans that you can just put on a t-shirt or a bracelet and be done with. But that's pretty good. Love God, love people. When we're talking about the answers to our ultimate questions, the greatest commandments, That pretty much sums it up. Now, there's more to it than simply that. But I don't think it has to get much more complicated than loving God and loving people. But simply hearing the hierarchy of the commandments, which one's the greatest, that doesn't actually do us much good. 
We have to respond to that truth. That's the the fourth answer that uh, Jesus gives us to our ultimate questions in this text. He ultimately says, okay, enter the kingdom. Know God, love God, love people, and you enter the kingdom. Note how the scribe reacts to what Jesus said, uh, verses 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He believes what Jesus said. That's how he starts. He says, you're right. You're the teacher. This is true. This is who God is. That's what he's like. We do have to love him in this way. The scribe hears the truth of Jesus' words and he believes them. The first step of response, anytime you hear the truth of God's word, is for you to believe that it's true. Not just true out there, somewhere, theoretically, but for you to believe it true in you, for you. And that belief, when it takes root, ultimately has to lead to obedience. Notice how the scribe's comments end. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Obedience flowing from belief is how this greatest commandment to love God and love people ultimately meets its fulfillment. These scholars have been coming after Jesus. They've been focusing on the words of the Old Testament law, the details, the minutiae that they've been trying to figure out over and over, the intricacies of everything that they had read. And then this scribe comes along and says, oh, you're right. Obeying is better than following all of these rules perfectly. Now I get it. If we love God and we love people, all these other details are going to come into place around that. As we pursue loving God and loving people, the other things are going to come in line with that. Because when you love God and love people, your life is going to look differently. But you've got to understand the order there, the hierarchy there. That you don't bring your life in order, and in so doing, you're able to then love God and love people. You love God and love people, and your life starts to come in order in uh, obeying his commandments. He realizes that to obey is greater than sacrifice. Greater than the specific rules that he got. Greater than the things that he can do for God is the love that he can give to God. To love God and love people means that all the other obediences to the moral law of the Old Testament are naturally going to flow and happen. And maybe the craziest part is, the scribe didn't make this up. Jesus didn't make this up. It's not new. He wasn't the first to realize this, and Jesus isn't changing what the Old Testament said to make this happen. He's not getting rid of everything that came before and replacing it. He's showing them the truth within what had already come before. Because the Old Testament says this same thing, that to obey, to love, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It says that over and over and over again. I had, at one point, in the text of this sermon, as many places as I could find where it said that. It got to about 15, 20 pages, and I had to stop because you guys are just going to leave if I start reading all those for like three hours. It's over and over again. It's so prevalent that within our reading plan this last week, we read almost literally these exact words. First Samuel 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. That's what Scripture is saying over and over and over again. God is saying, I'm not looking for you to give me more dead animals. I'm looking for you to give me your life. I'm looking for you to respond in love to what I have done for you. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm after. True belief works itself out in obedience to God and his voice, rather than a rigid focus on the letter of the rules and the traditions that were handed down. True belief results in the true obedience of loving God and loving people. And ultimately, I hope that's how this scribe responded. Because the text is a little bit ambiguous as to what happens to him. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. There are pretty good arguments both ways as to whether the scribe actually was converted or not. Jesus said, You're not far from the kingdom of God. He didn't say you're in it. He didn't say, go forth, your sins have been forgiven. Yet, everybody else gets a rebuke here. Everybody else gets called a hypocrite and told to leave. The scribe, it's like he's encouraging him. He's saying, yes, you're right on. Keep going. Keep going. You're not far from the kingdom of God. See this truth. Understand who I am. I hope that the scribe in this moment didn't hear this as a new law as a new and different list of do's and don'ts that he has to follow to enter the kingdom. I hope that's not how you are hearing me this morning. I've spoken more today than I usually do about what you are to do. The the points have been very command-focused. Know God. Love God. Love people. Enter the kingdom. That's not usually how I preach. That's not usually the, the way in which I frame things. We've been pretty heavy on application, and I think that's a good thing because the text is really clear. The text is very application-focused. But my fear in the back of my head every time we do something like that is that when you hear me saying throughout the whole sermon, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, that when you hear those things, you're going to forget that all of what we do, all of our do's and don'ts are built upon the done of Jesus Christ. It's as a response to who he is, as a response to what he's done. You don't earn his salvation. You don't earn what he did for you. You don't earn his life given in your place and on your behalf, but you respond to his salvation. You respond to his gospel by saying, yes, I believe that's true. I believe I've been saved. And now in response to that, I love you and I serve you and I follow you. Now you can love God. Now you can love people only as a response to what he has already done. We are to know God, which enables us to love him. And when we love him, we will love our neighbor, our brother, absolutely. But all of that is downstream from the gospel, downstream from his love for us. That passage in 1 John we mentioned earlier makes that same point crystal clear. Before it says in verses 20 and 21 to love your brother. So if you don't love God, or if you don't love your brother, you don't love God. It says this in 1 John four nineteen: We love... Because he first loved us. None of this belief, none of this obedience matters for you apart from God's prior action for you. Apart from what he has already done, it doesn't matter what you do now. He loved you. So though you were dead in your sins, failing miserably to uphold the commandments he had given, failing to love him or people, 
Christ died for you. He exchanged your sinful disobedience for his perfect obedience. And then he came back to life to procure for you a new, perfect, and eternal life. And that life that he has procured for you is given to you, not on the basis of your perfect obedience and perfect fulfillment of these commands, but on the basis of your faith and belief in what Christ has done. Your repentance from your sin. That now, because of who he is and what he's done, the life that he has called you to, you no longer walk the way in which you were going. You follow his way and his path in obedience to what he has said, to love God and to love people. We do love God. We do love people. We obey. We put forth our effort. We try. But all that we do, everything that we do in our lives is in response to what he's already done. And ultimately what that does is it allows today's sermon not to be a new weight that has been placed on your back. You guys stink at this, love God, love people, do better. That's not the point. The point is, through what Christ has done for you and in you, he has called you into love of the God of the universe who loves you. And when you love him, you will love the people around you. And in so doing, when you accept his gospel and live his life, you enter the kingdom. That's what he's called you to. He's saying, I'm not giving you a new list of things to do in order to get to heaven. I'm giving you a new way of living in the new life you've received through Christ's gospel on your way to heaven. And that way that he has called you to is ultimately summed up in the greatest command to love God and love people. If we are looking for the end of our ultimate questions, if we're looking for the main purpose and focus of what our lives should be, we can't do any better than to focus on what Jesus gave us as the end of his answers during his life. Know God, love God, love people, and enter the kingdom, enter his rest. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for calling us into your worship, for loving us first, that we might respond to that love, that we might accept that love, believe and repent due to that love. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given to your people. Help for us to respond to that in every moment by knowing you better, by understanding you more, by pressing into the revelation that you've given us. Help us to love you more, to love you better with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. Help for us to have that love not just be something private between you and us, but be something that overflows and is shown to the people around us. That as we love you, we may love people. We may give them your gospel. We may show your love to them. And when we obey, when we respond, when we believe and repent, when we live the life you've called us to live, help us to ultimately enter the kingdom. Built on your finished done, help us to do and be what you've called us to do and be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.